Renanine, and welcome to another episode of Cobb's Corner. If this is your first time listening to Cobb's Corner, welcome, and to my returning listeners, welcome back. On today's episode of Cobb's Corner, we will be continuing our American Film Institute's Top 100 Greatest Movies of All Time with Singing in the Rain. This is number five on our list. Singing in the Rain follows a silent film star who falls for a chorus girl just as he and his deliciously, delusionally, excuse me, jealous screen partner are trying to make the difficult transition to talking pictures in 1920s Hollywood. Uh, Storyline. 1927 Hollywood. Monumental Pictures' biggest stars, glamorous on-screen couple Lena Lamont and Don Lockwood, are also an off-screen couple if the trade, papers, and gossip columns are to be believed. Both perpetuate the public perception, if only to please their adoring fans and bring people into the movies together. In reality, Don barely tolerates her, while Lena, despite thinking Don beneath her, simple-mindedly believes what she sees on screen in order to bolster her own stardom and sense of self-importance. R.F. Simpson, Monumental's head, dismisses what he thinks is a flash in the pan, talking pictures. It isn't until The Jazz Singer, 1927, becomes a bona fide hit which results in all the movie theaters installing sound equipment that R.F. knows Monumental, most specifically in the form of Don and Lena, have to jump on the talking picture bandwagon, despite no one at the studio knowing anything about the technology. Musician Cosmo Brown, Don's best friend, gets hired as Monumental's ideas man and musical director. And by this time, Don has secretly started dating Kathy Selden, a chorus girl who is trying to make it big in pictures herself. Don and Kathy's relationship is despite their less-than-friendly initial meeting. Don, Don and Kathy's relationship is... is... a thing, I guess. Despite their less-than-friendly initial meeting. Cosmo and Kathy help Don, who has worked his way up through the movie ranks to stardom, uh, try to make the leap to talking picture stardom, with Kathy following along the way. However, they have to overcome the technological issues, but the bigger problem is Lena, who will do anything to ensure she also makes the successful leap into talking pictures, despite her own inabilities and at anyone and everyone else's expense if they get in her way especially Kathy and Don's off-screen girlfriend, and possibly his new talking picture leading lady. This storyline is provided to us by uh, Hugo, that's H-U-G-G-O, via IMDb. Big, big shout-out to Hugo, big shout-out to IMDb. The movie is directed by Stanley Doney and Gene Kelly. Well, co-directed by Stanley Doney and Gene Kelly. Uh, Co-written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And stars Gene Kelly alongside Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds. Without any further ado, let's go to Cobb's Corner.
so some of my favorite parts in this movie include uh, the opening scene where we see Don Lockwood and uh, Lena. Lena, what's her last name? Um, Lena Lamont. Yeah, we see Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont. L Lamont. Uh, on the red carpet outside the Chinese theater, and it's 1927, and they've got some movie coming out, and there's all these questions about, like, are they together, or are they not together? And then Don pretty much gets on the mic and says, and talks about his origins, his sort of humble beginnings in Hollywood. And he talked about how the, how, how he and his best friend... Uh, Cosmo, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor, how the two of them had been friends their whole lives, and they had and they had started out doing um, vaudeville, doing vaudeville shows around around the country, and from there made the transition to Hollywood. This being, of course, during during the silent era, in probably the 1910s or early 1920s. And that's how Don got his start, and you know now he and now here now here he is, a big big time star in 1920s Hollywood. And then that night he meets uh, Kathy Selden, Kathy Selden, who is a stage actor, a stage actor, or as she was referred to in the in the introduction as a chorus girl. So she's a chorus girl who kind of looks down on Don being an actor, essentially, you know, saying how acting is kind of like a low art, and I don't want to, I don't want to have, like, the biggest, like, sidebar or anything, but I'll, 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 dive, I'll dive more into that in the themes and analysis, uh, but she essentially says how if it's a movie, you know, you've seen it once, you've seen, you've seen one, you've seen them all, and that there's really nothing new to, um, to, to movies, there's really nothing of substance to movies and to acting. It's not the same as being a stage actor where you have, we actually have sound, where you actually are like speaking, where actors, it's pretty much a pantomime on the screen, as Don referred to it. And so initially, Kathy writes, writes Don off, and then later that same night, the two of them end up at the same party at the house of... R.K. R.F. R.F. Simpson, <laughs> R.F. Simpson, who's played by uh, Millard Mitchell, R.F. Simpson, who is the um, producer at the film studio that that everyone works at, uh, Monument, Monumental, Monumental uh, Pictures. And at that party, there's a there's a musical number that Kathy is Kathy's a part of. I think the scene. And I knew the scene looked familiar because it was shown at the end of the movie Babylon. If any of you have seen Babylon, it came out December of last year. That's another period piece about the 1920s. And at the end of that movie, there's a time jump to, I think, the year 1952. We see, we see uh, Manny, Manny Torres, one of, one, one of the main characters in the movie. He's sitting in a movie theater, and we see him actually watching Singing in the Rain. And... And the the part the party scene in the first act, like that's the that's that's one of the scenes that they show in the movie. So as I'm watching Singing in the Rain, I'm thinking like that scene looks familiar. So so yes, we see that um, 
there's a musical number that Kathy's part of, and then she had, <laughs> and then she had like picks picks up a cake and then is aiming for Don, is aiming for Don Lockwood with this cake, and then ends up hitting Linda, <laughs> or Lena, my bad, ends up hitting Lena Lamont with the cake instead of Don, and um, it was just hilarious. It looked like it looked as if it was like perfectly planned. Uh, later that that same night at the party, they see the first talking picture, the first or video or talking pictures as they were referred to at the time. You know, now sound has been introduced. You know, both audio and visual has been introduced. It's a thing in the world now. And how pretty much this is like new technology and it's revolutionary for the time period, um, especially amid the movie The Jazz Singer, uh, which came out in 1927. Uh, the Jazz Singer, which was a, which was a movie in real life um, from Warner, Warner Bros. Pictures, The Jazz Singer. And so now studios are having to make the transition from silent films to sound, to, 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 to sound movies that we all know and love today. Um, this, you know, 1927, so 96 years ago? Almost a century ago, that was um, that was revolutionary. You know, transitioning from silent films to now sound films, and and now and and now they have to account for sound. Although nobody at Monumental Pictures knows how to use any of this technology, so and and now Don, Lena, Kathy, everybody's got to transition to now speaking on camera. And the studios don't have like the kind of sound technology, or when they do have the technology, everybody's got to learn how to use it. It's like a whole entire industry shift. And it's a whole industry shift, especially after the success of Warner Bros. Pictures and the the Jazz Singer. So now all the studios in Hollywood want to cash in on you know, the talking pictures. You know, talking pictures—that's the new things, the next, the next big thing, the next best thing. So. The transition to sound, uh, Lena, we see that Lena is a bit of a control freak and you know, she, she just thinks that she's above everyone at the studio, including R.F. Simpson. There's a scene where she actually like sort of comes for R.F. Uh, Sim Simpson amid the, uh, amid the release of the, of the talking picture, uh, duel, Dueling Cavaliers, like the movie within the movie. And... So Shalina has to see has to see like a, a voice coach who tells her like round tones, round tones, and uh, and it's and, and, it, and it's actually pretty funny because you know Lena she's a very high pitch high high pitch voice. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this was uh, Gene Hagen's actual voice or if she had intentionally like modified her voice or intentionally made made her voice higher to play Lena Lamont. But she just had a very, very high-pitched voice, and it was very, very difficult for her to say certain lines. And then another one of my favorite scenes, which also kind of gave me Babylon vibes a bit, because in Babylon we see how there's a transition to sound, and there's like a really long scene where they're getting uh, Nellie Leroy to kind of hit her mark and some scene where she's supposed to be in a college dorm and they had to have this guy in this giant like sound box it was like a whole thing um 
they, they, they struggled with getting Lena to talk into the microphone, so they tried having the microphone in a bush, and then they tried having the microphone on her, uh, like, a part, as, as a part, part of her costume, so we get some of the audio, and then some of the audio we do get, some of the audio they don't get, and then there's a test screening, six weeks ahead of the premiere, there's a test screening, and, and, you know, we just end up, <laughs> end up picking up the wrong audios, like, some, like, she was, like, playing with this, like, pearl necklace, and the microphone just picked up all of the pearl necklace, and then, it, like, didn't pick up any of her audio, or the audio was in and out, it was in and out, it was, like, a whole thing, <laughs> and, you know, it was actually really, like, like, the, the, audi the audience members, like, a lot of them kind of thought it was, thought it was a bit funny, but many of them were very just disgusted with the performance by, you know, Lena and Don, and, like, the audio was out of sync as well, like, <laughs> Like, like, the audio was not in sync with the video, like, it was a whole thing. Again, like, I've said in past episodes about how, you know, old Hollywood, and, like, especially around, especially, I would say, around, like, the, around maybe, I guess, I guess you could say the 1920s and 30s, and maybe even in, in the 1950s. Uh, when when this movie came out, like the in the ingenuity, like we take we take for granted all the technology that we have today, but back then, like it was a whole process syncing audio and visual. Like they were limited by the technology at that time, so there was a greater sense of like ingenuity, a, a sense of like we need to develop ways to film movies, to film different types of movies uh, more effectively and more efficiently. So, so that so that so the movie that they were doing the initial premiere is it, it show it shows the limits of this new technology this new this new industry shift to uh to to sound and then a after the premiere uh Kathy Don and Cosmo they're back at I think they're they're back they're back at Don's house and they come up with the idea or Cosmo comes up with the idea to just lip sync, to just have Kathy speak on behalf of uh, Lena, have Lena act out the scenes, but then have Kathy actually do all the singing and do all the lines, and then synchronize the audio with the visual, and so. So Cosmo comes up with that idea, and then they shift into the song uh, Good Morning, which this kind of goes to like kind of the next part of this uh, segment that I wanted to get into was the musical elements and the fact that Singing in the Rain is a musical and it's probably one of the greatest musicals ever made and so many so many movies so many musicals to this day you know 71 years later this movie came out in 1952 this movie's over 70 years old this movie's older than myself it's older than I'm sure most of us listening <laughs> Um, but the fact that, like, movies that I've grown up with have referenced Singing in the Rain, every, movies from Coming to America to Planet 51 to, I remember the movie Robots with Robin Williams, God Rest His Soul, um, yeah, and, and, and there's the song Good Morning that's in this movie, I feel like it was on, like, a Tropicana <laughs> Orange Juice commercial, I thought the song was from Little House on the Prairie, um, which even that's before my time. But 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 yeah, but you, you start to see like the timelessness of this of this uh, movie. You know, we get like I said in like like I said um, earlier, 
that it's a love letter to uh, old old Hollywood. It's a nice it's a nice love letter to to the 1920s. But we get the song "Good Morning" and nice nice little musical sequence and very vibrant. You know, it's very very vibrant uh, colors. And then after after that song, we get the song "Singing in the Rain," which again, hence the title of the movie. Uh, Singing in the Rain. It's a song that I'm sure you've heard. I'm sure you've heard in movies. I I know. I, I know it's re- it's been referenced in the movie. I know that the song singing the song Singing in the Rain has shown up in the movie uh, Leon, The Professional, um, A Clockwork Orange, uh, Movies Rock. So so yeah, sing, Singing in the Rain. We get a nice sequence with Don Lockwood as he's literally singing and dancing in the rain. Very precise choreography and, you know, very, very, you know, quick movements and so. So yeah, this this movie's a very, it's a very vibrant movie. Lots of vibrant colors, lots of, um, lots of vibrant colors and, you know, Technicolor, which, which is my understanding in the 1950s, Technicolor, doing movies in color, that was new at the time. That wasn't like, it wasn't like today where like now it's like the norm now it's the industry standard like you know technicolor was very very new at that time so overall i just love love loved this this movie and the way that it's sort of like the timeless nostalgia of the changing of the seasons of adapting to to new to new environments to new trends to new technologies and you know and 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 just overall this movie is just very very just joyful i feel like it's for all ages it's just a very fun uh movie it's very very fun movie it's very vibrant and you know it's a love letter to 1920s Hollywood, while also itself being a nostalgic film in its own right, having been referenced in so many other films and shows over the past uh, 71 years. And I feel like it's going to continue to be referenced um, for, for, for years to come. So, I mean... The movie ends with... And I guess this, this is the, the, last, the last scene that I'll talk about before I get into like the themes and analysis. This movie uh the the last scene in the movie is the premiere of uh dueling cavaliers or doubling cavaliers Yep, uh, so so we get so we finally get the premiere of that movie, and and unbeknownst to Lena, they have they have um, replaced all of her lines in the movie with uh, with the dubbing of with the dubbing of uh, Kathy. So so it's Kathy singing. It's actually Kathy doing all the singing and all the talking. And Lena's acting out the scenes, but then they just replaced her voice with Kathy's, unbeknownst to Lena. And then the movie premieres, and then there's a whole like, there's a whole like curtain call. There's a whole you know she, her and Don come out. They take a bow, and then, and then uh, Don has Don has this great idea of having Lena. You know, Lena wants to go out and actually 
talk and speak for herself for once. And uh, so she actually goes out and says, tells everybody, thank you all for coming. You know, it's been, a, it's, been, it's been an honor being in this movie and blah, blah, blah. And then Don has this great idea to... Well, but then the audience realizes that that wasn't Lena in the movie. That wasn't Lena's voice. They realized that it was Kathy's voice. <laughs> they realized it was Kathy's voice in the movie. <laughs> they realized that it was Kathy's voice. And again, Lena still has no idea that they just dubbed all her lines with Kathy instead of her. So Lena goes out there. She starts talking. The audience is just shocked. Like, this sounds nothing like the you that was in the movie. And then they ask Lena to sing. But then Don's idea is have Lena out there singing and then just have Kathy behind the curtain with a microphone actually singing while Lena's just lip singing. So Lena, she's, you know, in on the idea and then they just have Lena lip singing and then they have Kathy actually singing and then Don, Cosmo, and RF, they all just kind of, you know, casually walk over or, well, not casually, I guess in a dancing maneuver, walk over to the ropes to open up the curtains and then they just pull the ropes and they open up the curtains <laughs> and now the audience sees Le sees Lena just lip singing and sees Kathy actually singing but again Lena is facing the facing the audience so she doesn't know that 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 the audience can see Kathy behind her singing and um so the audience just starts laughing and then eventually Kathy just like She's kind of in tears. She just runs off the stage. She's about to storm out of the theater, and then Don says, "Like, wait, stop, everyone!" It's like, it's like everyone. The lady who just ran off the stage. She's the one whose voice you heard in the movie. She's the real star. So everybody then gives her then gives her a standing ovation, and she gets a round of applause, and then and then. Um, the last shot of the movie, we see a billboard with uh, Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain. Monumental pictures. So as I kind of briefly uh, touched on in my favorite part segment, this movie deals with the themes of love, uh, change, joy, and growth. Uh, themes of love, we see that Don is in love with Kathy, that Don, Don Lockwood is in love with uh, Kathy Selden. And, you know, she kind of, again, challenges him at first, but then the two of them eventually, the two of them eventually fall in love. They grow closer to, to each other and, and, and they, and they, although they have this wedge between them being Lena, of course, Lena's sort of the, like, barrier between the two of them, but we see Don fighting for what he loves, fighting for his role as an actor 
and fighting for the woman he loves, the career that he loves, and pretty much doing what he loves. Uh, the theme of change. Uh, I know. I, I know. I keep saying uh. Um, <laughs> my apologies. The theme of change comes in with the transition from the silent film era to now talking pictures. And this is one of the earliest examples of a shift in Hollywood. Uh, granted, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that most of you listening to this episode were not alive in 1927, so most of us only know what this was like through movies like Babylon and Singing in the Rain. Uh, period pieces. Although it is, again, a, a universal theme of change and, and the, uh, the ability to know that what was once an industry norm, what was once a norm in general, may, today may not be the norm tomorrow and that something better is down the road. So the ability to adapt to the new environment, adapt to the new world. You know, what once, you know, what once was no longer is, and stepping out of the old and into the new. So that theme of change, uh, the theme of joy, you know, the, the theme of joy because Cosmo in this movie is always smiling, he's always the joyful one, and he's sort of the, the sort of like, maintaining the theme of joy he represents the, the theme of joy in the movie like he's just always always smiling he has a whole musical number called make them laugh and so despite whatever might be going on between don and kathy and lena and rf simpson cosmo is just the, jo the joyful one and keeps the keeps the movie as like upbeat as possible so as upbeat and as cheerful and as joyful as possible. Um, this is also reflected in the very vibrant uh, Technicolor. You know, 1952 Technicolor. This is, so the movie is shot entirely in, in color, with the exception of the few scenes of... With the, with the exception of, of the few scenes of the movies within the movie, those are, those are uh, in black and white, but most, but majority of the movie is shot in color, so very joyful, very vibrant. Um, the theme of joy is also reflected in a lot of the musical numbers. Like I said, this is a musical. This is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest musical movies of all time. Um, and I can see why AFI has put it as number five on their list. I, I have no problem with them putting it as like number five, as fifth to, of course, I mean, come on, Citizen Kane, Godfather, Casablanca, Raging Bull, you know. So, still pretty solid, you know. Put, putting it as number five, but it's very, it's very joyful, very upbeat. It's not as dramatic. So, so yeah, the theme of joy, and again, the theme, the theme of growth. I think along with change, you know, change is inevitable, but personal growth is a choice. I'll say that again: change is inevitable, but growth is a choice. So, Don, choosing. Choosing to continue acting, choosing to go after what he wants in life, choosing to, amidst 
whatever studio politics might be going on behind the scenes with the transition to sound, choosing to keep at it and to keep acting and to come up with new ideas and to, to grow as a person, to grow as a man and to, yeah, you know, so yeah, the four main themes, main takeaways are love, change, joy, and uh, growth. Yeah. Love, change, joy, and growth. On to Singing in the Rain Plus. From the heathens, got will, got fight, got pride, got reason. If they wanna go eat, then you know I'm gonna feed them. If you're coming for me, hope you're ready for a demon. I got eyes in the back of my head, I'm seeing. Take me for granted, and you know I'm leaving. I'ma take what's mine with the webs I'm weaving. I could take this crap from seeing to believing. Got a taste for blood in my tongue. Starting off with the awards. At the 1953 Academy Awards, Jean Hagen was nominated for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, and Lenny Hayton was nominated for Best Music uh, Scoring of a Musical Picture. So unlike the other movies on this list, uh, this movie did not get a whole lot of Oscar recognition. Only two nominees, um, yep, two, two nominees at the 1953 uh, Oscars, but... Um, no wins, just nominations. BAFTA Awards, 1953 uh, BAFTA Film Awards. Singing in the Rain was uh, nominated for Best Film from Any Source, uh, USA. At the DGA, the 1953 DGA Awards, Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly were nominated for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures. At the 1953 Golden Globes, Singing in the Rain was nominated for Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. And Donald O'Connor won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical. Satellite Awards. The 2000, 2003 uh, Singing in the Rain was nominated for the Golden Satellite Award for Best Youth DVD and nominated for Best DVD Extra and Golden Satellite Award for Best DVD Extra for the DVD commentary on the 2000, I guess in, I guess in 2003, there was the DVD release of Singing in the Rain, and this, and then the movie was nominated for Best Youth DVD and Best um, DVD Extra for its audio commentary. National Board Review, uh, 1952, Singing in the Rain won the NBR Award for Top 10 Films. So, National Board of Review, 19, 1952, if I'm not mistaken, the 1950s is when, and this, and this, this was, I think that this came up in the documentary, The Battle Over Citizen Kane, which is a documentary from, like, the mid-90s, and they said how, in the 1950s and 60s, that was when all of these different, like, film societies, like, whether it be the American Film Institute or the National Board of Review, they started to kind of culminate like what are some of the greatest movies of all time so this movie came out right around the start of that like time period that we're still kind of living in I, I, I guess like when all these film societies started to throw together their list for like the top 100 greatest movies of all time or top 10 or you know 
So, Singing in the Rain was put on the NBR's list of top 10 films. The year it came out, 1952. Wow. So, that's what you call an instant classic. The National Film Preservation Board, in 1989, Singing in the Rain won the... Was, was put on the National Film Registry. Photoplay Awards. 1952, Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Gene, and Gene Hagen, they won the Photoplay Award for Best Performances of the Month in June. Writers Guild of America. WGA, shout out to the Writers Guild of America. Shout out to the Directors Guild of America. We appreciate all the work that you do. Uh, Betty, Comden, Betty Comden and Adolph Green won the WGA Award for Best Written American Musical. DVD Exclusive Awards. Uh, Paul Hemstreet, the producer-director, along with Kristen, Kristen Crichton and Peter Fitzgerald, were nominated for the DVD Premiere Award for Best Overall New New extras and new, best overall new extra features and library release for the 50th anniversary edition of Singing in the Rain. So probably back in 2002. So two, 2002 50th anniversary edition. That might have been when the DVD came out. Oh two. Um, uh, 2003. They were also nominated for the uh, David M. Thompson and Margaret. Smillo, the producer, were nominated for the DVD Premiere Award for Original Retrospective Documentary uh, Library Release. So, again, uh, for, for Great Performances, uh, 1972, for episode Musicals, Great Musicals, the Arthur, uh, the, the Arthur Freed Unit at MGM for the 50, 50th Anniversary Edition. So now i got to get my hands on this 50th Anniversary Edition because apparently in 1972 there was some... Uh, show or documentary, great performances, and they had an episode, Musicals, Greatest Musicals, Greatest Musicals, the Arthur Freed unit at MGM. So, <laughs> yeah, music, musicals, great, musicals, great musicals. Okay, cool. Oftas, Online Film and Television Awards. My bad. Uh, just this year, uh, Make Them Laugh won the Ofta for uh, Film Hall of Fame. Won, won, won the off the Film Hall of Fame for song, uh, the song Make Them Laugh. Uh, two years ago, the off the, the off the Film Hall of Fame accepted the song Singing in the Rain into their song Hall of Fame. And back in 1997, uh, Singing in the Rain won the off the Film Hall of Fame for motion picture. All right, on to the trivia. For the Make Them Laugh number, Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor to revive a trick he had done as a young dancer, running up a wall and completing a somersault. The number was so physically taxing that O'Connor, who smoked four packs of cigarettes a day at the time, ended up in a hospital bed for a week after its completion. He suffered from exhaustion and painful carpet burns. Unfortunately, an accident ruined all of the initial footage. So after a brief rest, O'Connor agreed to do the difficult number all over again. Wow, I mean, hey guys. You know, if any, if there's any uh, smokers listening, I'm telling you, you can quit. 
quit before it's too late. Any reason is a good reason not to smoke a cigarette. Same goes for vapes. Gene Kelly was a taskmaster with Debbie Reynolds, who had never danced to this degree before rehearsal started. Fred Astaire, who was in an adjacent dance studio, found her crying under a piano and reassured her that all of her hard work was worth the effort. Yep, you just got to keep going. Keep going and know it's not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. You're not going to feel great about it every single day, but you got to have the discipline to keep moving forward. Now, all your hard work is worth the effort. You just got to keep moving forward. Keep going and got to push yourself, folks. Now, whatever it is. So, big, big shout out to uh, Fred Astaire for those words of encouragement from uh, Debbie Reynolds. Uh, Debbie Reynolds, RIP. Um, some of you, for those who don't know, Debbie Reynolds is actually Carrie Fisher's mom. So she's Princess Leia's mom in real life. Yeah. Debbie Reynolds remarked many years later that making this movie and surviving childbirth were the two hardest things she'd ever had to do. The filming experience was particularly unpleasant due to her harsh treatment by perfectionist Gene Kelly. Decades later, Kelly expressed remorse about his behavior. I wasn't nice to Debbie. It's a wonder she still speaks to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say that movies where there's shenanigans behind the scenes and the movie comes out bad, but that's clearly not the case with Singing in the Rain. But, you know, it's one thing for someone to maybe be overbearing and be a perfectionist, but it's another thing entirely for them to acknowledge the error of their ways. So big, big, you know, shout out to Gene Kelly and his family and any of you are listening or those who have survived him and you know but yeah you know Debbie Reynolds Debbie Reynolds having uh, having said that having said that uh, Gene Kelly was difficult to work with um, I mean same thing's been said about like a million other folks in Hollywood so I'd say take that with a grain of salt Microphone was hidden in Debbie Reynolds' blouse so her lines could be heard more clearly. During one of the dance numbers, her heartburn her during one of the dance numbers, her heartbeat can be heard, mirroring what happens to Lena Lamont in the movie itself. Oh, okay. So that was a bit of a like sort of meta meta nod sort of so that was actually like Debbie Reynolds like real heartbeat. So So yeah. That was Dead Reynolds' actual uh, heartbeat in the movie itself. Okay. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. Okay, alright. <clears throat> Again, I have worked a Hamilton reference into... Um, <laughs> not every film. Not every film on the list. I don't think I'd squeeze one into Raging Bull, but... I digress. Only 19 when cast to play the film, Debbie Reynolds lived with her parents and commuted to the set. She had to wake up at 4 a.m. and ride three different buses to the studio. Sometimes to avoid the commute, she would just sleep on the set. That's dedication. That is hard work and dedication. Uh, it's funny that Debbie Reynolds was only 19 when she was cast to play, to play uh, in, in Singing in the Rain because her daughter, Carrie Fisher, was only 19 
when she was cast as Princess Leia back in uh, 1977. So, yeah. Nice little, uh, little parallel. Let's get the um, Fisher Reynolds uh, biopic. Anybody at MGM, if you're listening, I got a few ideas. Maybe I can contribute to the script. Maybe. Please. Okay. But big, big shout out to Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds, and she is a real one for that. That is commitment. I don't know if I could do that at 19, but up at 4 a.m., riding three buses. Hmm. All right, on to some goofs. Continuity. During the Kai Sharice nightclub dance number, when she's wrapped around Gene Kelly, her body completely changes positions between frames due to a clumsy edit. According to commentary on the special edition DVD, this cut of only a few frames duration dates back to the original release of the film and no one knows why it exists. Another unsolved mystery of Hollywood. When the diction coach is reading Moses Supposes, Cosmo is making faces behind his back. When the coach catches him in the act, they both flinch. It then cuts to a wider shot and they both flinch again. Yeah, Cosmo is just the upbeat. I feel like we all need a Cosmo in our lives. <laughs> we all need a Cosmo or a Donald O'Connor. We all need a Cosmo Brown in our lives. All right, to just always pick everybody. Yep. You know, I hope that I can maybe be the Cosmo for some of y'all listening. Uh, you know, whatever you're going through. You know, just remember, every day above ground is a good day. Remember that. Cosmo's violin bow breaks and the hairs can be seen flapping about. I picked up on that. Yet when they finish the piece, the bow is fixed. I definitely picked up on that. That that much I did pick up on. You know, I'm not sure if folks in 1952 noticed it or not, but I did. The scene with Gene Kelly performing an action sequence from the silent film The Royal Rascal uses footage from the earlier film The Three Musketeers, 1948. After he throws the guard with the spear over the stairwell railing, Lana Turner, who played Lady De Winter in the earlier film, is briefly seen coming through the door on the landing before it cuts to the new footage of Gene Hagen hugging Kelly. This discontinuity is made more noticeable because of the drastic differences in hairstyles and dresses worn by the two actresses. I did not notice that at all. This is why I love IMDb, folks. During Make Em Laugh, the green couch slowly changes position. It is in front of the, hall, of the hallway backdrop where Cosmo first enters that part of the scene, but it has moved stage left by the time Cosmo does the backflip off the backdrop. Hmm. Okay. Inter interesting uh, choice for the blocking and the setting. Okay. I'm sure it, when I go back and rewatch this, I'm sure I will pick up on all of these. I'm just gonna have like this list of goofs, and I'm gonna have to like be pausing and like fast forwarding and rewinding and slow motion watching this movie. Some factual errors. It shows that every studio started making talkies after the jazz singer 1927 was released but even the major studios balked at the idea at the most studios would release two talkies a year but they still released them also as silence as most cinemas were not equipped for talkie films 
Talkies were believed to be just a fad. The last silent film was made in 1936, ten years after The Jazz Singer came out. Okay, okay. So that was nice. Um, so yeah, I guess that was, that was a ni nice bit of creative liberties. I guess cre creative liberties um, were, were taken for this movie. Uh, it being a fictional period piece. And... Alright, so yeah, they, they, they were still making silent films well into the 1930s. Um, I think that's something that might have been brought up in Babylon and in the movie The Aviator. The Aviator, because uh, Howard Hughes, he was, he was making movies in, um, in the 1930s. And yeah, the talkies were a thing, but they, but they were still new at the time. And people were still watching silent films. And so it kind of took a while for like silent films to become the norm like they are today it didn't happen overnight it didn't happen in a year you know it didn't happen again silent films were still made 10 ye up to 10 years after the jazz singer so near the beginning of the film when don lockwood flees from his fans outside the chinese theater he jumps via other vehicles to the top of a tarmac running along its roof he holds on to the trolley pole uh, current collector, <laughs> this is live, and he would be in instantly electrocuted. <laughs> I mean, after after re after reading that, it's like, okay, yep, that 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 is that is true. You know, um, I should have picked up on that. I am an engineer. Um, for those listening, anybody in Cal in the state of California, shout out to you all. Anybody, uh, especially those of you who live in San Francisco, I think I might have rode a trolley or rode like the the city bus in san francisco so do not touch those wires those are live wires got to be careful folks um singing in the rain is just a movie <laughs> incorrectly regarded as a goof as the curtain opens on the preview showing the dueling cavalier the title card shown on the screen spells it uh Dwelling, dwelling, D-U-E-L-L-I-N-G. Um, English department, please come in and pronounce my and correct my pronunciation or my spelling, please feel free to just have that in the comments. However, since both spellings are in fact correct from a grammar perspective, it is entirely possible that one was used during production and the other adopted only at the preview. Okay, because I because I because I know maybe like some sometimes like studios will have like a working title, like a, a a working title, and then they'll have like the test screenings, and then they might change the title from the working title, and then that maybe that won't be like the official release title when the movie comes out. So studios have been known to do that from time to time. Revealing some mistakes. When the audience watching the silent film The Royal Rascal is shown, they are brightly lit, especially in close-ups, when they are supposedly in a darkened theater. I picked up on that. Definitely picked up on that. I, I feel like that's, that's a couple times in, in the movie. Not just, in, not just at the beginning with The Royal Rascal. A couple times. Near the end of Singing in the Rain dance number, Don is shown in the street with a large puddle of water behind him with no water drops hitting it in the downpour that is everywhere else. During some... Okay. Okay, it's an <laughs> interesting bit of editing, I guess. During some parts of the fit as a fiddle number, Cosmo and or Don do not move their fingers while playing the fiddle. <laughs> I kind of I, I picked up on that. I, I kind of figured that the fiddles were just like 
props and that there was somebody actually making the music behind the scenes like in the film itself like at that performance when Don Cosmo and RF are pulling rope to raise the curtain behind Lena to reveal that Kathy is actually singing their hands don't always grasp the rope and the rope on the other side of the pulley doesn't move so they should not be able to raise the curtain but it rises anyway uh, I, I definitely pick, picked up on that you know the, the other rope was not working and they weren't actually grabbing it yep yep I, I picked up on that during the famous make them laugh sequence, Donald O'Connor both plays, then later walks on an upright piano keys, an upright piano's keys, which barely move in the process, revealing it as a prop, no doubt created to avoid the risk of damaging a real one. I notice, I noticed that. We have one miscellaneous uh, goof. The same crowd cheering noise is used. The same crowd cheering noise is used twice in the opening scene outside Grauman's Chinese Theater. First, after Don Lockwood says, "Now in front of all these, not in front of all these people," and secondly, after Dora Bailey presses Don Lockwood to tell his life story. I didn't pick up on that, but <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, and I, I feel like. There's, a, there's probably a ton of movies that have recycled audio time and time again. Need I remind you of the Wilhelm scream that's in every movie? <laughs> Anachronisms. As Kathy takes Don to Sunset and Camden, 1950s era cars have been can be seen passing in the background. I kind of I kind of noticed that. Yeah. Maybe a bit. Kind of noticed that a little bit. When Lena meets Don at the R.F. Simpsons party after the big premiere of The Royal Rascal, she mentions something like, I didn't see you last night at Wally Reed's party. Wallace Reed died in 1923, and the action of the film is set in 1927. Hmm. Okay, so interesting. Uh, I don't know if maybe in this universe uh, Wally Reed's still alive in 1927, but factual error nonetheless. The police officer Don meets after singing the title song is seen wearing an oval LAPD badge. That design wasn't adopted by the LAPD until 1940. The film being the film being shot in 19 film being set in 1927. So we got we got the time travel. We got the the traveling. Oh, ooh, we got time cop. We got the time cop. The time cop that met with that the time cop that saw Don Lockwood at the end of Singing in the Rain. Oval LAPD badge that was not adopted until 1940. We got the traveling time cop. The theater where Vita, where Vitaphone is playing has a wedge-shaped marquee with milk glass reader boards and blank letters. Trapezoidal modern marquees didn't show up until 1935 slash 36 wedge-shaped marquees showed up later than trapezoids and illuminated reader boards with silhouette letters even later than that so although typical of the early 1950s era in which the movie was filmed it's otherwise at least a decade ahead of the late 1920s era in which the story is taking place well 
I mean, how many of us actually picked up on that? I mean, how many of us... I mean, the, the real historians picked up on that. The real film historians, you know, shout out to all of you. Shout out to the person who brought the star attention on IMDb. Uh, feel free to go more in depth. Again, the comment section, it's open. It's there for a reason. At the after party early in, in the film, guests are dancing to the song Temptation, which was not published until 1933, six years after the film takes place. Very true. Very, very true. I'm going to pretend like I knew that. <laughs> Audiovisual unsynchronized. When Lena Lamont is having problems talking into the microphone hidden in the bush, and Roscoe Dexter and the sound man are in the booth. The sound man shakes his head and says, She's got to talk into the mic. I can't pick it up. His mouth does not move as he says this. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional, but that's just like probably one of the most meta bits of trivia. <laughs> I've heard this entire episode. If you listen carefully to the soundtrack as Gene Kelly tap dances in the rain, actually, uh, Carol Haney tapping, you can hear additional taps after Kelly stops dancing. True, true. I, I, I kind of picked up on that. In the car where Don and Kathy are arguing, she says, at least the stage is a dignified profession. To which Don sarcastically replies, dignify profession. The word profession was clearly dubbed later, later as it sounds different from the rest of his dialogue, and his lips can be seen to say something else entirely. Alright, again, e e eagle-eyed viewers, thank you for all that you do. Crew or equipment visible? During the fight scene in the Royal Rascal, Don's character pushes the guard to the spear, over the railing of the stairway. As the guard falls, the hands of a crew member are seen reaching out to grab his legs. <laughs> Alright, hey, look. Crew members, tighten up. Crew members, alright? We can't be seen, y'all. Alright, quiet on set. Alright, everybody's gotta tighten up. When Don jumps off the trolley into Kathy's car, a wire supporting Don is visible. Don Lockwood, as a stuntman, drives a plane into a shed. Oh, that's, that's the next one. A, a wire supporting Don is visible. Well, I guess that is sort of a, it's a movie moment. Don Lockwood, as a stuntman, drives a plane into a shed. Upon impact, two men jump out from behind the shed. Yeah, yeah, you know. Can't get caught in the crossfire, I guess. At the beginning of the movie, when the stuntman goes over the balcony, a hand can be seen stopping his feet from hitting the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, um, that was clearly there. And, you know, for that reason, we must uh, question MGM and make sure that they're now we have to watch all of MGM's movies, old and new, and make sure that they've got no crew or equipment visible. And when they do, IMDb will be there to point it out. Errors in geography. In the montage leading up to Fit as Fiddle, the final sign reads Coyoteville, New Mexico, uh, elevation 421 feet. But the lowest point in New Mexico is Red Bull Reservoir at 2,000 844 feet. 
Again, whoever's the geography guy at NMGM, you gotta, come on, gotta get on it with this geography, alright? And it would have been even worse if they were in like, I don't know, Denver. 421 feet, Denver, you sure? Okay. Some plot holes. The Dueling Cavalier had a variety of audio issues that weren't worked out by the time a finished product was made for the preview, but the studio had other films in production earlier than The Dueling Ca Cavalier, such as the musical Kathy was working on when Cosmo saw her, which apparently had fixed any audio problems related to dialogue. Why the studio didn't apply those fixes to The Dueling Cavalier before the preview is not explained. Very, very true. Some character errors. In Don Lockwood's film The Royal Rascal, his character is seen pushing a man into a moat. Later, when he jumps down the same spot, it has become a cobblestone street. R.F. Simpson tells his guests that Warner Brothers is making a whole movie using the new talkie system. He is referring to The Jazz Singer, which came out in 1927, which is mainly a silent movie. Only a small portion of it contains sound. Oh, wow. I have to check out this jazz singer movie, but um, apparently it was mostly silent and only a small portion of it contained sound. All right. At the end of Beautiful Girl, all the models gather by one of them gather, but one of them loses her swimsuit girl pose and and she walks down the steps, almost tripping. Well, you know, character errors, it's like you gotta remember the blocking, like, come on, let's get with the program. When Don Lockwood is trying to create the romantic scene in the empty stage set, he says, we add 500,000 kilowatts of starlight, and flicks the switch to turn on the lights. 500,000 kilowatts, that's 500 megawatts, <laughs> is a gross exaggeration, as even if there had been 500 lights, highly unlikely, each would have had to produce one megawatt of energy, which would have immediately melted all the bulb filaments, and would have been impossible using 1920s technology anyway. I mean, yeah, kilowatt, no, 500 uh, kilowatts is a lot. 500,000 kilowatts, yeah, that'd be the studio fire. Immediately. I would know, I'm an engineer. When R.F. Simpson plays a talking picture demo film on a screen at the after party for The Royal Rascal, he makes a statement that Warner Brothers is making a whole talking picture, The Jazz Singer. Although it was the first full feature film to use a synchronized audio and dialogue, most of the film was silent and used intertile cards for the dialogue. However, the few scenes using sound delighted and excited the audiences and heralded the end of silent film era. The en en end of the silent film era, okay? So again, that was previously mentioned in one of the previous bits of trivia, but yeah, you know, the, the jazz singer had like one or two scenes of actual speech, of actual audio. So yeah, that sort of signaled the end of the silent era. But yeah, it was like new and it was exciting, still. On to some quotes. Don Lockwood in being mobbed by several fans on the street. Don Lockwood desperately, Hey, Cos, do something. Call me a cab. Cosmo, okay, you're a cab. Don, thanks a lot. <laughs> I was going to bring that up in my favorite parts. <laughs> it's like, Don, call me a cab. Okay, you're a cab. 
Cosmo. Lena. She can't act. She can't sing. She can't dance. A triple threat. Yeah. Yeah, Le Le Lena was probably one of the most untalented individuals in the movie. Um, you know. Uh, Cosmo. Talking pictures, that means I'm out of a job. At last, I can start suffering and write that symphony. <laughs> R.F. Simpson. You're not out of a job. We're putting you in... Putting you in as head of our new music department. Cosmo. Oh, thanks, R.F. And at last, I can stop suffering and write that symphony. At <laughs> last, I can stop, <laughs> stop suffering and write that symphony. So, yeah, he's going to write the symphony either way. You know, I can... Um, although I'm no longer suffering, but I still got to write the symphony. Yeah. Connections. The Three Musketeers, 1948. The action sequence with Lockwood and Lamont in the in The Royal Rascal is edited from this film. Note, for a brief moment, Lana Turner appears on the stairway, landing before it cuts to new footage of Gene Hagen. Interesting. Interesting choice. In interesting choice to uh, put The Three Musketeers, again, a movie from 1948, in the movie, which this movie takes place in 1927. So, Interesting bit of continuity. User review. Delightful. Many good things can can be and have been said about this one, and they're all true. It's a great movie. The title number gives us Don Lockwood, Kelly, in love as no other person has ever been in love, no doubt. He steps out the door and it's raining, but he's obvious, but he's oblivious to the rain. Who needs an umbrella when you've got wings on, wings on your heart and on your feet? Not the incomparable Gene Kelly, and as he treats us to the single finest moment in the history of cinema, do not miss this one. Well, okay, uh, that's pretty bold, you know, the single finest moment in the history of cinema. Um, okay, uh, big, big, big shout out to the user who gave us this review on IMDb. I did not get the, I did not get the user's name. Um, you know who you are, but uh, big, big shout out to you. I agree, yeah. I mean, many great things can be said about this movie. I've said many great things about this movie. I have very, very, very few complaints about this movie. This is overall, I would say, one of the greatest films of all time. Um, one of the greatest musicals, if not the greatest musical of all time. If we're talking just musicals, like, we're getting genre-specific. One of the greatest musicals, one of the greatest comedies ever. You all need to check this, check this movie out. It's for all ages. All right. IMDb rating gave it an 8.3 out of 10. I'd probably give it a 9 out of 10. Letterbox score, 4.3 out of 5 stars. Seems fair. 4.3 out of 5. I'd maybe give it a 4.5 out of 5. Uh, details. The movie was released on April 10th, 1952 uh, in the United States. Uh, the movie is in English. It's also known as Pojmo v. Dezju. Forgive me if I mispronounce that. I'm... That's in some foreign language. Pretty sure I mispronounced that. Uh, filming locations. Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studios. Uh, 10, 10202 West Washington Boulevard, Culver City, California. Uh, for the, 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 New York, the New York City streets, they were you know, filmed at MGM Studios. Which is also the production company, Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM. On to the box office. The movie had an estimated budget of $2.5 million dollars. Its gross domestic box office haul was only $1.8 million. Its opening weekend 
It made only $13,600. And worldwide, the movie only pulled in a little over $2 million. Yeah, less less than two point one million, like two million and two hundred eighty eight dollars to be specific. So the movie did not break even at the box office. It didn't break even. It didn't make a profit, not domestically, not worldwide. Uh, so didn't do great at the box office. But you know, beyond the box office, it's, it's still regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. But that's not reflected in the box office for some reason. Different time. Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes has given this movie a 100%, which is really, really bold of them, because there's very few movies that actually have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, audience score only gave it a 95%. Uh, maybe with the audience, 95%. Just because I'm reluctant to ever give anything like a 10 out of 10. Just the kind of person I am. Critic, critics consensus. Clever, incisive, and funny. Singing in the Rain is a masterpiece of the classical Hollywood musical. Period. I got nothing to add. Watch Singing in the Rain with a subscription to Max. You can rent Singing in the Rain on Apple TV, Vudu, Amazon Prime Video, or buy it on Apple TV, Vudu, or Amazon Prime Video. That's all I've got for this review of Singing in the Rain. If you liked what you heard today, then don't forget to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening from. If you got a movie or a movie series that you would like me to review next, then all you got to do is hit me up on Instagram, Threads, TikTok, or email me at CobbsCornerPodcast at gmail.com. All of that information is in the show notes below. Uh, tune in to next week's episode where we review City Lights. City Lights will be, will be skipping... We'll be um, skipping all the way to number 11. We're skipping five movies um, only because all the movies between City, between Singing in the Rain and City Lights. So movies uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all based on books. So I will be temporarily skipping those movies and I will come back to them once I have read the book. And I will come back to them and once I have read the book and watched the movie and then I will review it. So for the time being, our next movie will be City Lights which is number 11 on the list. If you made it to the end of this episode, I greatly appreciate it. Be sure to turn on those post notifications so you get notified when I post and when I make uploads, when new episodes come out. And tune in to Talk Time with Morgan Cobbs Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Chook Standard Time, live on YouTube, available everywhere else the next day. I hope you all enjoyed your stay here at Cobbs Corner, and I'll talk to all of you in the next episode. Peace.